Welcome to New City Church. My name is Andy. I'm one of the pastors here. Let's pray, and I think we'll get into it. Dear God, you are a good king. Um, Thank you for bringing us here today. Thank you for a new year, um, 2017. We ask that you would um, bless it, that you would bless our time today, that you would uh, help us hear what you want us to hear today, that we would forget what you would have us forget, and remember um, the core truths of, of who you are and what you've done for us. You're a good king. Amen. So, this is a new year. And with it come New Year's resolutions. But, have you ever figured out why we do New Year's resolutions? Where they come from? Um, The tradition of New Year's resolutions dates all the way back to 153 B.C. That's actually before Christ, right? B.C. And it comes from... The month of January having the name Janus, which is a, a early Roman god of the time. And Janus had two faces. And one face was looking forward and one face was looking back. This allowed him to look back at the past and then also forward into the future. And so on December 31st, the Romans at that time imagined that Janus would look back at the old year and would forgive their sins, would forgive what they had done wrong. And then looking onto the new year, ask for blessing to him. They would offer sacrifices for um, who he is and what they want in their life. This, the Romans believed that Janus could do all these things for him and that they would leave their enemies or they would leave all their trouble behind in the old year and embrace the new year with this Janus um, setting the tone for him. Thus, New Year's resolutions have been around even longer than Christmas. Uh, but to what end? We are Christians. Should we partake in this pagan celebration of forgiveness and fresh starts, in worshiping Janus with our New Year's resolutions and our commitment to change. We'll see you today. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word in 2 Corinthians five sixteen through 21 From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore... If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself and not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You may have a seat. So let's start in the overall context of this passage. Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians. Uh, He actually ended up writing three or four letters to them. Two of them we have lost, and through God's providence, that's probably a good thing. The two we do have, um, this is the second of. He's addressing, and the the overall theme of the the 2 Corinthians is addressing more problems of living as Christians in a church. He's addressing the problems that Christians create uh, because of sin between one another. uh, Both the stupid things we do and the evil things we do. And so in in this letter and in this part particular, Paul is talking about the gospel and how it reconciles us back to God as well as back to one another. So, in this first section, God is making us new creatures. Here, Paul is making the case that the perspective of the Christian faith and the Christian is different than that of the non-believer. He's saying that there are believers and non-believers. And he's saying that the non-Christian, 
think that people are simply people and that Jesus is just another one of those people. He's also saying that the Christian believes this, that people are valuable creations made in the image of God and that consequently, to Christians, Jesus is God. He's our Savior King. He's one of the three persons of the triune Godhead. Jesus has a different relationship with Christians than with non-Christians. Now, during this time of resolutions, I don't know if you're making them or not making them. I did a quick survey of a bunch of my friends, and um, out of, I guess not a bunch, eight. And out of eight friends um, here in the church, three are making resolutions, or three or four, one hadn't decided, and then the other four are not really into that sort of thing. So maybe this is applicable either today or not. But as you look towards the new year and think about making resolutions, be careful, because the world has a message of resolutions, and it harkens exactly back to when resolutions started, in the worship of Janus. The pagans have their view of God, and the Christians have their view of God. With the, with the world, they will tell you that the new year is a, is a time for a new you. That you are the one who can make the change you want to see in the world. You'd be the change you want to see in the world, right? That's in every public school classroom on the wall. New year, new you. But that, is that what we see in Scripture? As we read Scripture cover to cover, and specifically here in this text, is that what Paul is saying? Is that if you want to be a new person, you can be a new person. Just make a resolution. Resolve to do something or not do something. Is that what God says? I would say no, surprisingly, I'm sure. Um, that is not what Scripture says. What we see in Scripture is that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Side note, if you have never memorized Scripture, this may be the perfect verse to start memorizing Scripture with. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Scripturally, what God thinks is that the only way for us to absolutely see change in our lives is for us to first be in Christ. This is a big deal. What is, what, what, but what does it mean, in Christ? Ephesians 4 says, And in Christ, as we're in Christ, we are to put on the new self. Created, this new self is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In Christ, this means that we've been forgiven all of our sins and that our rebellion against God has been made peaceable. We have been given a relationship with God that we did not earn. And thus, we have been created new after Christ. We follow Adam in all of his sins and not Adam here. Adam in the Bible. We follow Adam in all of his sins and are under him in his relationship with God, which is one of rebellion. And in Christ... We can repent of our sins, follow Him into death. That's what baptism is, the, signifying, or the representation of death with Christ, and then new life with Christ. That's why after baptism we don't hold you down. We bring you back up. We want you to have new life with Christ. Our old self is dead, and our new self is alive with Him, released from the power of death. When we are in Christ, we are a completely new creature. We have new desires with new motives, a new message, and a new mission. When we are in Christ, we have a new nature. When God makes us new, He starts from the core of who He is, demolishes who we were, and then gives us His new nature. A, a good way to think of this is if you were to take a vulture and a rabbit and then put them both in some really sanitary, nice scientific room. 
You would look at them, and then in front of the vulture and the rabbit, you would set each a piece of meat and a piece of lettuce. So each the vulture and the rabbit have a piece of meat and a piece of lettuce. Now, what do you think the rabbit is going to do? He's going to eat the lettuce, right? Now, the vulture, what do you think the vulture is going to do? He's going to eat the rabbit, yeah. <laughs> you know, that is an option. Um, but more, more likely than not, he would eat the meat. And so that is because of the nature of that animal. The nature of a vulture when he was created, when they were created, is to eat meat. Usually dead, I guess they can kill it. But they would eat meat first before they would eat the veggies that we all know are really good for us. However, they're not good for vultures. The rabbit then consequently would hopefully not eat the meat. That's weird um, and be a terrifying rabbit. But the rabbit would eat not the meat but the lettuce, the veggies, because that is the nature of the rabbit. That's what's good for him. When Christ makes us new, he takes us from a vulture to a rabbit. He gives us a nature that is not our own. In fact, it's contrary to our own. In the same way that it's contrary for a rabbit to eat meat, it would be contrary for us to become like God. It's contrary for us to have relationship with God, again, because we're under that old Adam, because of our sinful nature, our desire to sin, our desire to please ourselves. When God makes us new, he gives us something that is completely outside of ourselves, something we could not earn, a new life. I don't know if any of you have died and, and tried to come back to life again, but it, it's very hard. You, you cannot do it. Um, death is something that only Christ, only perfection can conquer. And so in that, God sacrificed himself for us and gave us a new nature. And in this passage, that's what it means when it says, the old has passed away. The vulture has passed away. Behold, you have become the rabbit. Just kidding. But behold, you have become like Christ. You are a new creature. Now, there is still sin in the world. There is still sin in our hearts. The process of the $10 word sanctification is not yet complete. Um, we have relationship with God, but we are not yet perfectly like God. We have a new nature in Christ, but there is still sin in the world. And so thus we still struggle. We still sin. We still um, commit treason against the Lord, but we have hope. Now, God makes us new creatures, and that, that is our hope, that we can now um, be created in the new life and be forgiven of, be forgiven of our rebellion. In this, we do not, as the world would say, give ourselves a new life, create a resolution and create something great for us in 2017, but we are simply given this new life. It is something that God does for us, on our behalf, in us. And then with that new creatureness, that new nature, there is a new mission. So the text continues. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, Christ, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself and not counting the trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. This is super simple, though it is one long run-on sentence. It is very simple. A child could understand it, and I would plead with you, teach your children this. Just like the vulture now wants to eat veggies, and grow big and strong. We have a new desire. We have a new purpose. And what we like to say at New City is we have a new mission. We have a new thing that we're going after as a church, as believers. We want to see people reconciled to God 
We want to see ourselves reconciled to God. Our purpose is now changed from one of satisfying our own desires to working for the Lord. To being satisfied by the Lord's desires for us. We have a new purpose, which is beginning with the reconciliation with God, which is a one-time thing. God reconciles us to himself, and then as we continue to sin, we have peace with God still, but that relationship is fractured because of our sin, that fellowship, sorry, is fractured because of our sin, and so we repent of our sin and continue in that peace with God. The definition of reconciliation is a Greek word. It's called katalasso. And this means to return into favor with, to be returned into harmony with. Reconciliations means to change in an exchange. Then it also means to change a person so as that the opposite party may lay aside his enmity. This is a one-sided thing. This Greek word reconciliation is not something where two parties come together and then they make peace. It is a thing where God comes to his enemy, us, And then makes peace with us on our behalf. It's an exchange of his perfect life for our rebellion against him. The one-sided reconciliation um, is something that happens only in a state of separation. You cannot have reconciliation with someone who you are at peace with. That really doesn't make any sense, right? Um, Two guys, one in Denver, one in Florida would never need to be reconciled had they never known each other or sinned against one another. There's there's no purpose of reconciliation for people that do not know one another. One would not speak of reconciling two people at peace, but we do speak of reconciling people who know one another. We We speak of reconciling. This passage talks about reconciling because God knows us. He has authority over us. He created us. He, he knows who we are, what we do, our motives, our thoughts. And in that, we have become alienated in, to, uh, away from him because of our sin. We have, we have pushed God away. We have rejected his good life, both at the start of time and at the start of our lives, in our nature and our decisions. So reconciliation can only take place between two parties who have a close relationship with one another. God desires a relationship with us. He gives us that close relationship with him, and then he reconciles us to himself. Um, This is true of all people who are Christians. Even though we continue to sin and rebel against God, God works in his own reconciliation, his own justification of us, and keeps peace with us. There is no sinning or wandering or rebellion that can break what has been reconciled. The two senses of the reconciliation are one is a all, all, one for all time, and then one that is ongoing. My wife and I have always had not. My wife and I got married, and so we will always be husband and wife. So our relationship is set. That is a reconciliation that is good. Now we all we both sin against one another, and so the 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 peace is broken, and so that is a reconciliation that must continually be ongoing. This is a condition of the heart that comes against who God is. And he changes us by giving us the new nature. And then Isaiah expresses it like this in Isaiah 59. He says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that, he, that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But, in, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. 
This means that even though we have a relationship of rebellion with God before we're Christians, we can have a new peaceful relationship with God. Now, I, I hark on this point because it is pretty much what we talk about every week at New City. And you can find out more and, and why during the next four weeks in our New City Distinctive um, Sermon Series. But we talk about sin and rebellion and peace with God constantly. And, and believe it or not, we get flack for it often. It's not a fun thing to tell the world that they sin and need God. It's not a fun thing for me to hear on a weekly basis that I sin and need God. But what it is, is a tearing back of the curtain of what is actually happening. Christianity is the only worldview, the only belief system that shows you the reality and makes sense of what is actually real in the world. So as we repent of our sin and are made right with God, the word righteousness means made right with God, uh, through Jesus' death and resurrection, we can then have peace with God. A, w- a way to understand this is, is a, a prisoner of war. If a prisoner of war is in a POW camp, And one day, he is miraculously given the keys to the camp gates and told that the war is over. The king has won the war. The the war that we started, the king won and has now delivered all the prisoners of war from the camp. The prisoners of war are set free. Now, imagine that you are that prisoner of war and then you were given the keys to freedom. You were told that the war is over. What do you think you would do? Would you silently slip over to the gate at night, unlock it, take the keys with you, and just leave? Or would you, having suffered for years in that POW camp with the other prisoners, go and tell them that the war is over and that they are free? Would you proclaim the freedom that the king has bought for us, that the king has won the war? Would you not naturally, having experienced that same suffering that your comrades experienced, want them to be relieved of that suffering? Would you want to tell them of their freedom? That's our new mission. Telling people about the freedom. Telling people about what God has done. Doing everything we can to help them know Him. Regardless of how you are gifted as an individual. We are charged as a church to make known the name of the Lord to the ends of the earth. It's something that God will do. It's something that we are given the responsibility to do, but knowing that he will accomplish it. This is our new mission, and it is directly attached to our new nature. And if you're not a Christian, you don't get it. You can't partake in the new mission. You're still a prisoner of war. Sin has created that rebellion that put us in that POW camp. It's not good. This camp is painful. It is terrible. It's a place that we created for ourselves by rebelling against the king. But God has set us free. Knowing the pain and tragedy of sin, would you not, and maybe this is application for you, would you not tell your family who you just argued with for seven days over Christmas about the peace of Jesus? Would you not want to be reconciled back to God yourself if you've never repented of your sin? And would you not preach the word to those you know? The world will tell you that, unfortunately, there is a different message. The world will tell you that in our culture, the POWs are unwilling to admit that there is even a war. It's not a very fun thing to talk about war as a pastor. Jesus is the prince of peace, but it is a peace bought with his blood. It is a peace that is, is paid for through war. The POWs that have lived in the camp 
have created a community in the camp. They've, they've put down roots. They, they, they put up houses. They live and move and have their being there. They believe that that is where they are to be. That is where they to, are to create the perfect utopian society. But that is a lie. And you will see that lie uh, promoted all throughout January. As we all go to the gym for one month, as we all start those 10-day diets, you will be told that you can create the better you through your own effort. You can enjoy the POW camp. But that is a lie. There is no hope in the prison camp. Our mission as Christians, as people who have been told of the freedom of Christ and given a new nature, is to see other POWs acknowledge Jesus as king, repent of their sin, and leave the camp. In verse 19, it says that that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. The funny thing about this POW analogy is that most non-Christians would agree that something is wrong with the camp. When I go and do street evangelism, I'll, I'll often ask people three questions. Where did we come from? What went wrong in the world? And how do we fix it? Never have I once heard someone respond to me, Oh, no, 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 nothing's wrong with the world. We're good. Most people think we evolved from goo on our own, um, which is not surprising. That's what we're taught in school. But when you, when you ask someone, what is wrong with the world? First of all, they're like, why are you asking such deep questions? It is, it, what are you doing? Who are you? Um, and then by the end of the conversation, they're usually thankful because how do we fix it? Well, better relationships with people, being kind, to which I respond, oh, you mean like what I'm doing right now? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. That's not so weird. Hmm. But when you ask someone, how do we fix what's wrong with the world? Rarely, if ever, would a non-Christian, a POW, admit that something is not wrong with, or try and say that something is not wrong with the world, that the world is fine and as it should be. We as Christians know that something is wrong with the world. It's that fun four-letter word, sin. It is something that we participate in, that we do, that we want, and it is against God. All people, I would argue, know that something is wrong with the world. All POWs know that the camp is terrible, that it's not what they were made for, that there is a better way, a hope. What we disagree on as Christians and non-Christians is the message of how to fix what is wrong. So, verse 18 and 19, God gives us a new message. Therefore, verse 20, oh sorry, verse 20 to 21, God gives us a new message. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, through not only Paul and Timothy and the other evangelists and apostles who are with him, but through us as a church, us as individuals, God making his appeal through us, which is you, we implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, that, that is Old Testament in one sentence. Um, our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. Jesus was perfect. Jesus was the only one, as God and as man, at the same time, trying to explain that to your kids, that's hard, 
as God and man at the same time. He's the only one who was perfect, who never sinned, who obeyed every single one of God's laws in the Old Testament and the New Testament. God's laws are how we earn our way towards God. Yet we have, by nature and decision, rebelled against that. And Jesus is the only one who obeyed all of them perfectly. And so, in this, he's saying that because he knew no sin, he could be our representation before God. Jesus' blood was spilt because life is in the blood. And that blood was spilt and given to us so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is a, like, a short little word that we're teaching our daughter right now, just for fun, kind of. Imputed. The righteousness of God, the perfect relationship with God that Jesus has was imputed or given and placed on and created in us by Jesus. This is a simple message. It's a message that the world rejects because in accepting it, you have to agree that you are wrong. In accepting it, you have to agree that you cannot create peace with God on your own. The message of the world and that of our sinful hearts, is that we have limited freedom in sin. And so we must try every January to make ourselves thinner and more fit and more disciplined and taller and prettier. That's what the world says every January. And all nine months of the year, 12, 11 months of the year, all the other 11 months of the year, we are our only hope for newness and change, is what you will hear on every TV commercial and if you're quiet in your own heart this January. The message of the gospel is not limited freedom, but unlimited freedom. It is freedom from sin. It is freedom from slavery. It is freedom from a a POW camp. And not once a year effort to make ourselves better, but daily peace with God. Jesus is our only hope for this newness and change. Verse 21, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus became that sacrifice for our hope. So, at the end of this year and at the start of another year, we understand that God is effective for producing long-lasting change in us, not our self-will. Now, as Christians, we, we usually fall into one of two temptations. We usually fall into to license to sin or lawfulness to obey. And so we think we can obey God, we can be, um, earn His favor, make Him happy, Or we think we're free from that bondage, and so we can just go out on our own and do whatever we want to do. The Bible would tell you differently. And and I'm going to actually make the case here at the end that making a resolution is a wonderful thing. There's an old dead guy named Jonathan Edwards. He was a Puritan here in in America in the early 1700s. He made, at one point in his life, 70 different resolutions. Now, I would imagine that that was not all on one day, um, on the 31st of December. (laughs) But they were done throughout his life. And in his records, you can see that he read back on those resolutions once a week. Now, I would imagine, because he's sinful, that he did not do that every week. And I would also imagine that he did not keep every single one of those resolutions. But he tried to. And so in our effort to make resolutions to become more like God through the grace of Jesus, what we need to understand is that Jesus is the only one that can do that for us. Jesus is the only one that can give us the peace that passes understanding, even in our own sin as we repent. Um, There must still be effort, though. 
Like I said, there's the licentiousness and the desire to obey the law to earn it from God. What's called legalism, right? So legalists will look at a, a, a resolution list and say, I got this, I got this, I got this. And maybe a couple months later they fail or a couple days later I'll eat too much. And it will get really terrible for them because they're under putting themselves back under the law. And therefore they are trying to earn God's law, even though it's already been paid for them. We are trying to keep something that is not intended for us to be able to keep. And so, as a warning to the legalists, believe in freedom. Don't put yourself up there on a resolution list, posting on Facebook every day about how good you're doing on your diet. I will not be friends with you anymore. Um, But, as a warning, follow Jesus. Admit that you cannot keep that list that you want to make. But at the same time, do we follow the licentious person, the licensed person, and not even make a list? And who cares how fast I grow or who cares how resolute I want to be? Making and trying to keep these lists, or even small lists, huge or small, is is done when it's done in our attempt to work for God's acceptance, it's sinful and terrible. And it will hurt you. But when it's done as we work out our salvation... It can be hopeful and fun and joyful. Philippians says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, I could have preached probably twice as long a sermon on just this, these two verses right here. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, Paul's writing Philippians. Do you think that the people he's writing to, he is naively believing always obeyed? No. He's seeing Christ's obedience put on them and their effort to obey. So now, not only as in my presence when I was with you, but much more in my absence. Don't get lazy. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It is a powerful thing to be made a Christian. To be given new life. It is something that, may, though you may not remember the moment, it is something that changes everything for you. It changes your nature, your mission, and your message. As we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, it means that God is willing in you to put effort towards following Him. We cannot be the licentious person who makes no lists. We cannot be the person who does not care about following Jesus enough to pick up my Bible. To actually tell someone about Jesus. To repent to my kids or to my wife so that they might know what forgiveness and repentance look like. We cannot be the person that does not care about making resolutions. Because that person does not believe that Christ's sacrifice was worth their effort to follow him. Now, at the end of this scripture, it says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What does that mean? That means that as we accomplish those resolutions, maybe you will get thinner this year. (laughs) Good job. Tell me how you did it. Maybe you will do those things. And as you do those, understand that it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. You are not getting thinner to your own glory. You are getting thinner by the grace of God for his glory. As we follow Jesus, we need to understand that the main difference between the world's message and the one found here in God's Word is that His mercies are new every year. That's not what the Scripture says. 
The God of Janus gave mercy once a year. The God of gods gives mercy daily. In Lamentations, it says his mercies never come to an end. They are new every single morning. But to what end? We are Christians. Should we partake in this pagan celebration of forgiveness and fresh starts? Should we make resolutions of commitment and change? Yes, absolutely. But not once a year, daily. And in the power of Christ, so that there might be freedom when you fail, so that you know when you do not fail, it is by the power of Christ working in you. It is to His glory and not your own effort. It did not get you any closer to Jesus to lose weight or memorize the whole Bible. What it did was give glory to God, which is what our lives should be about the whole life, the whole time anyway. We are new creatures with a new mission, and we have a new message that directly opposes the message of the world. So again, in 2017, as you preach this message to yourself and to others, do not be afraid when you experience affliction, when you experience persecution, when, when you yourself persecute yourself for preaching that message to yourself. We must preach to ourselves the Word of God before we preach it to others. Resolutions are not hurtful when they are committed in the light of the power of the gospel. When they are made with the freedom to trust Jesus and to run in His perfection and not my own. It is not our lack of effort that gives us the desire to make a resolution list and to try and accomplish it. So I have a few questions for you. As you go out into 2017, as you come back next week, as you enjoy your food and your work, as you vacation and worship the Lord, what do you want to change in 2017? It is not a bad thing to ask. Most millennials hate labels. I'm one of them, and I hate labels. But it is a good thing to ask, what should I change this year? It is a great thing to ask, what can the Lord do in me new this year? The Bible says that it's God's plan to work out our salvation in us, and that we get to partake in that as it's giving glory to Him. Is what you want to change sin? Is it simply eating better? Or is it working out for all of January? Regardless, how will the Lord work that out in you? Do you know Christ? Do your friends know Christ? Do they know the hope that is in Him and Him alone for the transformation of our minds? What has been holding you back? As a Christian, what has been holding you back from exercising the gifts that the Lord has given you? From serving the Lord in the church and in your community and in your workplace? Is it desiring one big transformation moment that's never going to happen? Or is it believing God in those small daily moments where He actually works and changes us? Take advantage of the new morning mercies that the Lord has given you. Take advantage of the freedom to pursue Jesus with no failure. We're going to come and enjoy communion here in a moment. This is the body that was broken for us. This is the blood that was spilt on our behalf. Let's worship together and enjoy the Lord. If you are a believer, I would invite you to take communion. Bring your Bring your family and come worship the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, you, you are a good king. Um, I, I say that because, because you are good, because you've exercised goodness in our lives, uh, because everything that you do is good. Even when all the bad things still happen, we can trust that, that you are working things out for our good. Even though our good often comes through more of my death, comes through more of me becoming like Jesus and not becoming like who I want to be this season and, and make resolutions that matter. 
And may we give ourselves grace because you give us grace when we, when we fail at those things. You, amen.